Father in heaven, we do want to go home to be with you. We want to go to heaven. We want to see all the suffering and heartache in this world come to a close. But you've given us a work to do, and we haven't been doing a great job at it. I pray, Lord, that as we study this morning, that you would help us to understand exactly what has to happen so that this work can be finished and we can be home, go home to be with you. Please send the Holy Spirit, make things clear and simple is my prayer, and I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to talk about a word, it may not seem related at first, but actually I think this is the root of the problem. I want to talk about the word paradigm. You know, uh, the word was popularized back in the 1960s by a physicist named Thomas Kuhn, and he wrote a book, he wasn't really a historian, but he wrote a book on the history of science, and it was called The Structure of Scientific Revolution. Some of you may have read it, it's a fascinating book. And what Thomas Kuhn argued in this book, he said uh, that science didn't advance the way we normally think of it as advancing. We normally think of laboratories and they're doing all these experiments. And, and little by little, step by step, they're tweaking and refining their theories. And things are getting more and more accurate. But it's a very slow, gradual, incremental process. That's how we normally think about science. But what Thomas Kuhn argued was that science didn't advance this way at all. It said that science advanced when there was a radical shift in the underlying paradigm of the theory that was being used to model whatever discipline he was studying. And what he did in his book is he went through all sorts of major academic disciplines, whether it's physics or chemistry or astronomy or you know, biology or whatever, and he showed time and time again this is what happened, that there'd be a certain way of thinking and they'd be working and working and working trying to develop this thinking until finally someone would come along and say, no, we got the whole paradigm wrong, we need a paradigm shift, right? And propose a brand new model that completely revolutionized and upended everything that we thought about that particular field. And this is how science made advances. Take the field of astronomy, just one example. If you go back about 2,500 years ago, roughly, there's a man by the name of Plato, and he argued that, that all the planetary bodies moved around the Earth in circular, perfect, uniform motion. And if we could just calculate how those spheres were configured in their speed of rotation and the angles and so on, we should be able to predict the planetary motion, the different wandering stars is what they call them. We should be able to predict when there would be eclipses and when Mars would be in some place or, or Jupiter in another place. And we should be able, and so for the next thousand years, Greek scientists set out to try and maximize their understanding of the stars based on this paradigm. You understand what I'm talking about? By the time you finally get to about Four or five hundred A.D., you have a man by the name of Ptolemy, and he came up with this amazing masterpiece that was extremely accurate and predicted exactly where the planets would be and all the eclipses and all the astronomical... I mean, it worked. It actually explained the phenomena that we noticed. And for the next thousand years, no one really questioned Ptolemy's work. Until you come down to about the 1500s, and you kind of know where I'm going with this, right? A man by the name of Copernicus said, you know, why don't we, rather than just tweaking the model, why don't we change the underlying paradigm? Let's have a paradigm shift. And rather than putting the earth at the center and all these things spinning around the earth, why don't we put the sun at the center and we put all the planets spinning around the sun? And he developed a mathematical model to try and explain the very same exact astronomical phenomena that they'd been studying for 2,000 years. And you know, the fact is Copernicus's results were not any more accurate than Ptolemy's. 
But what he did is he changed the paradigm. He changed the discussion. He said, why don't we look at it from another perspective, a paradigm shift. And if you think about what happened over the next couple hundred years in astronomy, as a result of that paradigm shift, the field of astronomy, and this happened in every scientific discipline, the field of astronomy just exploded with Galileo and Kepler and Isaac Newton and, and all the way down to Einstein. And within just a few hundred years, we're actually putting a man on the moon. You see how powerful a paradigm is. When you're locked into a paradigm that's not working, you can tweak as much as you want, and you're not going to get where you want to go. But if you can have a paradigm shift that changes everything in a remarkably short period of time, you can have dramatic change. Do you understand what I'm saying? Now let me tell you my opinion. You can disagree or agree. But I think what we need is not just some minor tweak to how we're doing evangelism and ministry today. We can try and refine it. We can try and tweak our model, make it a little bit better here and there, and fix things, better pictures in our PowerPoints or better advertising. We can try and tweak it all we want, and we're never going to get where we want to be. What we need is a radical paradigm shift. The underlying model has to change in how we think. Here's why I believe this. We'll look at the scriptures in just a minute, but let's take your typical Adventist church. I was a pastor for seven years in the Chicago area, and and we did this time and time again, and we saw pretty good growth. I mean, our church tripled in attendance over the course of about seven years. But, uh, you know, but I've seen this in church after church after church, and we basically kind of followed the same model. So what we would do is every so often we would uh, get together as a church board and say, we need to do some evangelism. And so we, you know, we, we've done this so many times, we know exactly how to do it. Right? We think about who we're going to get to be our speaker, and we think about how much money we're going to put into flyers. And, and we go through this whole process. We plan it out. We get our location. Right? You understand what I'm talking about? So let's just take a hypothetical situation. Let's say you live in a town that has a nice round number, say 100,000 people living in it. And maybe in that town, maybe there's 50,000 homes. And so you decide you're going to mail a flyer to every single home in that community. So you're mailing out 50,000 flyers. Now, we've done this so many times as a church, we know exactly what to expect. We know all the statistics and all the probabilities. So, so we say, if we mail out 50,000 flyers, we can pretty well predict how many people are going to show up on opening night for our evangelistic meeting. Now, it varies sometimes. Right now in North America, we get about one per thousand will show up. So if we mail out 50,000 flyers, that means we might have 50 people from the community, not counting our own church members, that come out on opening night. Now, if you had 50 people show up, would you be excited about that? I say, yeah, praise the Lord. I mean, I don't think we ever quite had that many. We, we try to do evangelism at least once or twice a year. But let's say that you have 50 people show up, and everyone's excited, enthusiastic, and we're all praying and, and moving forward. And we should be, by the way, praying, and we should be moving forward, and we should be doing evangelism. Don't misunderstand me by this illustration. But you know what happens when you start the meetings, Right? I mean, little by little, something happens. Maybe someone hears something they don't like, or, or maybe you know, there's some other problem, scheduling conflict. Or, you know, and, and that number just seems to kind of shrink down, shrink down, and, and it gets smaller and smaller until you finally end up with just a handful left, and some of them don't even make a decision to accept the message, even if they make it all the way through to the end. Now, I don't know what you think is a, a good percentage, but my guess is if you have 50 people show up on opening night, you might, if you do well, get 20% to make a decision for baptism by the end. Maybe 10 people. Now, if you did a series like that and you had 10 people get baptized in your church, would you be excited about that? 
I mean, it was, even if it's just two or three, it's like, praise the Lord. I mean, every person is precious in the eyes of God, right? And we'd be ecstatic. And, and the angels in heaven, we know they're going to be celebrating. But we got another problem. And of those ten people, you know what's probably going to happen, right? I mean, they may show up for a few weeks, and then little by little, some of them start to slip away. And I don't, we don't always know why, but we lose track of them, and they just stop coming. Maybe they get discouraged. Maybe someone in the church isn't quite as friendly as we'd like, and they say something they shouldn't. And for all sorts of reasons, we start to lose some of these brand-new members. In fact, in North America today, we lose about 50% of every new member that's baptized within 12 months. So out of those 10 people, we're going to lose five of them, probably, most likely, in most churches, by the end of the year. Now, would you be happy if you had five people join your church and actually survive that transition and become regular members? Would you be happy about that? You know, not quite as enthusiastic, right? I mean, we're happy about the five, but we're sad about the other five that we lost, right? But then we got another problem. Out of those five members... How many of them do you think are likely to go on and become regular, consistent soul winners and start reaching out to other people and bringing them in on a regular basis? Now, I don't know if this is true, but I heard a statistic somewhere a few years back that said something like 95, 98% of our members never win one person to Christ their entire life. So, So what do you think the chances out of those five that even one of them is going to become a regular, consistent soul? I'm not talking about just you know, one or two people, but I mean, every year they're bringing someone to Christ consistently. What do you think the chance of that is? You see, here's what I'm, here's what I'm getting to, right? How many people lived in our community, this hypothetical town that we're talking about? 100,000 people. How many could we not get to come out and even hear one of our meetings? Well, 99,950, right? I mean, we got, in other words, 99.95% of the population, we couldn't even get to come out and hear one meeting. All they got was a flyer in the mail, and they tossed it in the trash. We couldn't baptize 99.99% of the people in that community. We couldn't keep 99.995%. And as far as equipping for ministry so that we now have more soul winners in our church, basically we failed 100%. Completely and totally. Now, do you think that just by rearranging the order of our sermons or having better pictures on our PowerPoint or having better marketing brochures, that by this method somehow we're going to tweak things enough to actually reach the 100,000 people in that community? See, Jesus said the problem is that the harvest is plenteous, but what? The laborers are few. Unless we have a paradigm shift and we start thinking about how we can produce more laborers, evangelism alone, the way we've been doing it, will never finish the work. We're just going to get farther and farther and farther behind. I'm not saying we, should do, we shouldn't do events. We should do more events. We need more people doing evangelism. But the way we're doing it right now can never work. It's impossible. Turn with me to the book of Acts. I want to show you what was happening in the New Testament just to give you a little picture Aren't you thankful that we have the record of the New Testament church so we can go back? It's like, like a little window, a little snapshot. We can almost go back in time and see what Paul and the other apostles and, and the other you know, leaders, and their, what they were actually doing in New Testament times to get the results they did. I'm so thankful we have this record. Acts chapter 2, you know the story. Peter on the day of Pentecost, he gets up, preaches a powerful sermon. Talks about Jesus being crucified and how he was resurrected and ascended to heaven and so on. Anyway, starting in verse 41. 
Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day were added unto them, what? 3,000 souls. Now, that's pretty astonishing right there. But if you think about it, this number is not really the most amazing verse in this chapter to me, and I'll tell you why. Think about the context, right? Jesus had been preaching for three and a half years, had made several trips to Jerusalem, had performed many amazing miracles. Prophecy was being fulfilled left and, and right, and many of those people were knowledgeable of the scriptures, and as they thought about what had happened, they realized that something significant had happened when Jesus was there, and they, and they began to put pieces together. When Jesus was crucified on the cross, the sun went dark for a number of hours. When he died, the graves were opened, and dead people came up out of the tombs and went into the city and started preaching. Now, on the day of Pentecost, Peter gets up, and, he, and him and the other disciples, they start to preach in other languages, and people are hearing these guys speak in their own, and, and they're saying, this is the fulfillment of the book of Joel. Now, I mean, under those kinds of circumstances where you have amazing supernatural things happening, maybe 3,000 souls is not quite as amazing as it sounds today. You understand what I'm saying, right? But keep reading with me. The next few verses describe what this early church was like, what they were doing. Skip on down to verse 47. They were praising God, having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church what? How often were people joining this church? Every single day, new people were joining this church. How many churches do you think there are in North America that are adding new members every single day? Well, I don't know. Maybe there's some, but I'm kind of skeptical that there's a lot of them. But this is what was happening in Jerusalem. Every single day, new people were joining. Just to give you an idea how quickly the church was growing. 3,000 people baptized in Acts chapter 2. Notice Acts chapter 4. Verse 4, Acts chapter 4, verse 4. Howbeit, many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the, are you there? The number of the men was how much? So if you have 5,000 men, how many women do you think there were? Probably another 5,000. What about teenagers and children? We're talking about 5,000 families, right? So in, from chapter 2 to chapter 4, and if you just read the narrative, it, it doesn't even sound like it's more than just a few weeks. I mean, that's what it sounds like. I don't know the exact time period. But over this short period of time from Acts chapter 2 to Acts chapter 4, the church grew from 3,000 souls to 10, 12, 15, maybe 20,000 souls in just a short period of time. Sorry. I'll go over on this side this time. Okay, Acts chapter 5. Look at this. Again, a short period of time, Peter and John had been arrested once before. They were beaten. They were told not to preach anymore in Jesus' name. Immediately go back. They pray for more boldness. And then they go right back out, start preaching again. They get arrested a second time. Acts chapter 5, verse 28. The priest says to them, Did not we straightly command you that you should not teach in this name? And behold, you have what? You filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. He said, you, you Christians are everywhere. Every single nook and cranny of the city of Jerusalem, you Christians are there preaching about this man, Jesus. You're everywhere. You filled the entire city. Is anyone really saying that about Christianity today? You Christians are everywhere. You're in every single, every little spot, everywhere we turn. You Christians are everywhere. Is anyone saying that about us today? You know, in Acts chapter 8, there is a big persecution. The believers are scattered under that persecution. Verse 4, 
They that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. So it didn't just happen in Jerusalem, but now we see the church is starting to expand into all the surrounding areas. Acts chapter 17, skipping over just a bit. Excuse me, Acts chapter 16. In Acts chapter 15, they had a council at Jerusalem to settle some issues, just to give you the context, and they made some decisions about circumcision and other things, and so they wrote some letters and sent them with Paul and his team out to all these Gentile churches. Now we've scattered all over the place, and there's churches everywhere, right? Notice what it says in verse 3, uh, verse 4, rather. As they went through the cities, they delivered them the decrees for to keep that were ordained of the apostles and elders which were at Jerusalem. And so were the churches established in the faith and what? Increased in number. So now we're not talking about Jerusalem where all those miracles happened in the supernatural phenomena that we talk, mentioned earlier. But now we're talking about Gentile churches far away from Jerusalem that didn't have any kind of exposure to those specific circumstances, Gentile backgrounds even. And Paul is out visiting these churches. Some of them he planted and others were probably planted by other individuals. And what is happening in all of these churches? Now, I'm not... Quite sure if it means new churches were being planted every day or in all these churches, new members were joined. I kind of think the latter. But it sounds like all the churches were growing explosively. I mean, something was happening in the New Testament that is radically different than what we're seeing today. What happened in Jerusalem wasn't a fluke. That was the norm for the New Testament church. If you're a Christian, you should expect new members to join your church every single day. This is just what happened in the New Testament. Acts chapter 17, verse 6. Paul was preaching in another city, got some people upset. They got a little mob together, broke into this house, tried to arrest them. They didn't find them. But anyway, notice the, the last part of the verse. When they found them not, J, uh, Acts 17, verse 6, when they found not Paul and his, and his team, they drew Jason, certain brethren, to the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world. Upside down, they're here now too. Is anyone saying that about Christianity today either? These Christians, they're turning the whole world upside down. If we don't do something to stop their growth, they're going to take over everything. They're going to be... No one's saying that. What they're saying today is Christianity is dying out. The mainline churches are in decline. Then in another generation, we're not even going to be a Christian nation anymore. The majority of our people will not be Christian. We're losing ground. We're not gaining ground. Can you see why I believe that we have to have not just an incremental change to our model of ministry, make small tweaks here and there. What we need is a radical paradigm shift. I mean, to get these kind of results is going to take more than just minor fixes to what we're doing. We need a whole new model of ministry. And I believe if we'll study the New Testament carefully, we'll be able to discover exactly what that model should be. Turn with me to Acts chapter 19. And this is just one place that Paul went to. It happens to be the city of Ephesus. And he was extremely successful in his ministry there. But we get a little picture of his methodology. And I like it because it kind of makes me think of a college campus. You'll see why in just a moment. But Acts chapter 19, look at, starting with verse 8. And just in your mind, visualize Paul walking right in through the gates of the city of Ephesus. He's looking around trying to figure out, okay, what do I do first? And, of course, he's going to do exactly what he did in every other church, he, every other city he went to. Verse 8, first thing he does, he goes into the 
synagogue. He speaks boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading things concerning the kingdom of God. What does that sound like to you? You go into a new city, you get a group of people together that have some kind of religious background, and for three months you're preaching every night. Sounds like an evangelistic series, doesn't it? I'm not saying we shouldn't do evangelism. I mean, Paul did evangelism. It's pretty clear. He did it everywhere he went. That's why he kept getting arrested and thrown in, you know, getting trouble and getting stoned, all kinds of things, because he was constantly preaching, constantly doing evangelism. And that's what he does in the city of Ephesus. The first thing he did is he did evangelism. So don't let anyone say that Dan Viss says we shouldn't do evangelism. We should. We need to do more evangelism. But notice what happens next, verse 9. When some were hardened and believed not, but spake evil of that way before the multitude. Now there's some controversy. Some of the Jews rejected the message. Some accepted it. And so now they're you know, butting heads together in the synagogue. When this happened, it says he separated the disciples, disputing or teaching daily in the school of one Tyrannus. So in other words, they had to leave the synagogue. They found another meeting location, maybe where they had a big amphitheater like this, where they could all gather together. And Paul continues the work, but now he is teaching and training the believers. He's continuing their education so they can grow up into spiritual maturity. In other words, evangelism needs to be combined with training. Evangelism and training together is the model that I see in the New Testament. People weren't just brought to Christ, but they were equipped to grow up into spiritual maturity. Now notice what happens when you do this, right? The next verse. This continued by the space of how long? Two years. Now, where was Paul during these two years? Well, three months he was in the synagogue, but the rest of the time, or maybe it's two months more, he was at the school of Tyrannus. So he spent three months doing evangelism and two years doing training. This continued by the space of two years, so that all they which dwelt in Asia, talking about Asia Minor, or what we now call Turkey, everyone in that whole country, all the cities and small towns and villages and people living in the countryside, everyone heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Within the space of how long? And where was Paul during this time? Was he out visiting all these other cities? It sounds to me like he was in the school of Tyrannus there in the city of Ephesus. Every day he was there training, 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 training. So how is it that everyone else in all the other cities heard the message? Well, it should be a pretty obvious conclusion, right? It was the people that he was training, that he was instructing, that he was working with, these new believers. They decided, you know, I need to go out and share with someone too. And so they would start spreading out. Every person that came into the church was equipped to go out and share their faith with someone else. And so the church exploded. You follow what I'm getting at? When you combine evangelism, effective evangelism, so new people are coming in the church on a steady basis, and you combine that with training where everyone that comes in is equipped and mobilized to go out and share with others, then the result is going to be explosive growth. In two years, the whole region was saturated with the gospel, and Paul says, well, we've pretty much knocked out this area. We might as well pick up and go over to the next place and do the same thing again. This is why the problem is that we don't have enough workers. Our harvest is plenty. There's plenty of people all around everywhere, but the problem is we don't have enough workers. That's why Ellen White says every church should be a training school for Christian workers. Right? Because if we don't find a way to mobilize our members, then, then we're not going to have much impact in our community. It's just that simple. If we could help every member learn how to reproduce, we would jump from 1% rate of growth to 100% rate of growth overnight. Uh, we're talking about an order of magnitude of two. I mean, 
a hundred times the rate of growth what we're seeing today, our church would be exploding. And they would be saying, you Adventists are everywhere. If we don't do something, these Adventists are going to take over everything. But we've got to figure out how to do it, right? Now, don't you wish, don't you wish we could go back in time and go to the school of Tyrannus and sit in on some of Paul's lectures and figure out what it was he was teaching to get these kind of, how he was producing workers? Wouldn't you like to know what he was teaching? Well, I sure would, and I've, in fact, spent most of my life trying to figure that out. And praise God, we have the New Testament record to give us an idea what he taught. Let me show you another passage. 1 Thessalonians. This is one of my favorite passages, and we actually kind of built our whole ministry on this passage because it's so clear the process that Paul led his students through. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, starting with verse 5. Again, just imagine we could go back in time. We have a little window, a little snapshot, and we're able to actually watch Paul at work. He's going into a particular city, and in, in these verses that we're going to read, Paul is just recounting exactly what happened, the stages that those, believe, those individuals went through as they advanced in their Christian life. So we get to watch his education in action. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, starting with verse 5. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. So the first thing that Paul did when he went into Thessalonica is he started preaching. And he started preaching with power and with conviction, with authority. And their, their hearts were, t- I mean, he was doing evangelism. That's the first thing he did. Again, he started with evangelism. But notice what he does next. Verse 6 it says, You became followers of us. And of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Ghost. So they went from being unbelievers, and Paul's preaching and doing his evangelistic series. Now they've received the message, and now they've become Christians. They've become spiritual babes. This is the first step in the journey, right? We accept Christ into our life. We accept the truths of the Bible. And now we are believers. Now, aren't you glad that Paul just didn't pick up and leave and say, okay, we got some... Brand new babes here, some new Christians. I'm going to go on to the next city. But he didn't do that. He stuck around for a while. And notice what happens next, verse 7. Not only were they spiritual babes, did they become brand new Christians, but verse 7 says that they became examples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. In fact, they, they went on to be models. Paul could go anywhere in the ancient world and say, look, if you want to know what a Christian is like, how a Christian lives, just go to Thessalonica because they're models, they're examples. You can imitate them. They are actually living out the Christian life. Yes, they heard the message when Paul preached it. They received the Word of God, and they became believers, but now they are practicing. They're living the Word of God. They're applying its principles in their life in very practical, concrete ways. And Paul can say, you guys are actually living out the Word of God. What do you think comes next? Verse 8. For from you sounded out the Word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia, but also in every place. In other words, they heard the Word of God. They received it, they accepted it, they believed it, then they began living it, practicing it, and now we see them sharing it. They went from being a spiritual babe to a disciple to a worker. Can you see this process clearly? Now, evangelism is what enables an unbeliever to become a believer. And we absolutely have to have evangelism. And I'm not saying public evangelism is the only way, but we have to have some means to help unbelievers become believers. That's what evangelism does. But training is what helps a spiritual babe become a mature disciple, and a mature disciple eventually be equipped to become an effective worker. If there's no training, what happens to those spiritual babes? You know, we think that a spiritual babe is someone that's new to the church. 
But I think that we have many spiritual babes in our churches that have been members for 20 and 30 and 40 years, and they're still spiritual babes. Do you know why? Because they've never been trained. Right? They've, they've never been taught how to internalize Scripture, how to practically apply it to their life, and they've never been taught how to share it. So they stay a spiritual babe. And in fact, unless we provide that training, they may stay a spiritual babe their entire life. It's a problem, isn't it? So a spiritual babe is someone that is just brand new Christian or maybe a Christian for a long time, but they are only beginning to learn how to take the Word of God into their life. A disciple is someone that has gone from just taking in the Word to actually living it out practically in their personal experience. And a worker is someone that has the skills they need to be able to share it effectively with other people. Can you see those stages? So in other words, as a, as a church, and I guess I'm talking to the church leaders here maybe, but as a church, what we need to do is put our heads together and think about how can we identify where the members of our church are and how can we help them grow from step to step to step. We have spiritual babes in our church. We need to figure out how we can get them studying and memorizing the Word of God, start internalizing it, taking it in, so the Word of God can have the impact in their life that it's supposed to have. And they can go on to become a disciple. Those that are maybe a little more mature in their Christian walk, we need to show them how to make specific, practical applications, how to manage their time, how to discern the will of God, how to gain victory over temptation so they can actually start living out the Word of God. And those that are already living the Christian life in an effective and a consistent way, we need to give them the tools and the vision and the skills that they need to be able to share the Word of God with others. If we can just figure out how to do that, I mean, we, we got the framework laid out for us right here in the New Testament. If we can just figure out how to do it, we can put our heads together and solve these problems. Something radical would happen in our church. But you know where it all starts? It starts with the paradigm shift. See, as long as our paradigm is our current method, we're going to be thinking, how many people get baptized? How many people come out to your meeting? We're just, we're just measuring baptisms and numeric growth, but we're not really measuring the spirituality of the members of our church. We're not asking ourselves, how many people are having regular personal devotions? We're not asking ourselves, how many people are living in victory in their life? How many of our members are act actively sharing their faith? Those are the questions we should be asking. When the paradigm shifts, what we measure shifts. Yes, we still do evangelism, and yes, we still count baptisms and all that, but, but that's just one part of a bigger puzzle, a big, bigger picture. Do you understand what I'm saying? Am I, am I being clear? So important. Spiritual babes really should learn how to begin memorizing Scripture. There's nothing more powerful in my experience, and I've helped thousands of people learn how to memorize Scripture. I, I could just give you testimony after testimony of what happens when you learn to memorize the words of Scripture and meditate. There's something powerful about the Word of God. It will change your life. Change your life. I wish I had time to do a whole... I just got one meeting this afternoon. I got something special planned for that, so I'm not going to be able to talk about memorization. But, you know, find someone around here that's gone through our survival kit or, or, or go to our website at FAST. And, and learn that it's not that hard. You just have to know the basic principles of memorization, and you can memorize as much scripture as you want. And I guarantee you, it will jumpstart your spiritual experience. We also need to teach the basic skills of discipleship. And I, I can't even begin to scratch the surface for this. But how to pray effectively and claim the promises of God and see answers to our prayer. We need to learn how to pray. 
We need to learn how to study the Bible effectively, how to find the principles of Scripture and how to convert them into personal, practical applications. And, you know, many of us struggle, and so the Bible seems like a boring book, a dead book. It's irrelevant because we don't know how to connect with it and pull stuff out of it that will change our life. Once you learn to do that, your life will change, and you will never see this book the same again. I remember one time years ago, I was one of my very first discipleship teams. I was leading a small group at an academy. It was a very conservative academy with good kids from all over the country. They came here because you know, our school had a reputation. And so we're talking about like the cream of the crop, right? And this particular group I was leading was a voluntary program, so no one had to participate. They weren't getting a grade or any kind of academic credit. It was just because they wanted it. So I had the cream of the crop literally in this class. And I remember one day we were talking early on about the importance of Bible study, and I asked them a question. I said, how many of you have been told all your life you should study the Bible? How many of you do you think raised their hand? Every single one raised their hand. I said, how many of you ever had someone sit down and show you how to study the Bible so you can get something out of it? We're talking about good, conservative, Adventist, Christian young kids. Not one raised their hand. You know what happens when you tell someone you should pray, you should study, you should memorize, and you don't give them the tools to be able to do it? It results in frustration. It results in discouragement because, you know, we think we should be, and we feel, we feel guilt, like, oh, I should be doing this, should be doing that, but I don't know how, it's not working for me. And this is why we have so much spiritual malaise in our church. Because we're telling people what to do, but we're not showing them how to do it. Tell people you need to have victory over sin, but we're not teaching them the basic principles of how to gain victory over sin. You know, before you tell someone to gain victory over sin, you need to be willing to come alongside them and say, I will go through this with you and I will help you through this. All aspects of discipleship. And many times I feel that we are just not even teaching the basics of the Christian life. And then we wonder why so many of our members are still acting like spiritual babes. You know, where, you know, Paul says, you know, you're still carnal because you're victoring and fussing with each other. It's because you're still spiritual babes. When you have spiritual maturity in your church, you won't have those problems. People need to learn how to take in the Word of God. People need to learn how to live out the Word of God. And people need to learn how to share the Word of God. We need to be able to teach ministry skills, how to reach out to our community, how to find interest, how to meet needs, how to build relationships, how to awaken spiritual interest, how to communicate Bible truth in a compelling way, how to call for decision, and eventually see people make a decision to unite with God's end-time people. We need to teach these basic skills to every believer. I personally believe, if you look at the New Testament model, and I don't have time to go into this either, I could do a whole series on any one of these topics, but if you look at the New Testament, I'm convinced that what they used primarily as the means of evangelism in the New Testament was a small group model. I call it called care groups. They met together in homes, and this is where most of the evangelism was being done in the New Testament. But I'll tell you what, care groups or small groups are not a magic bullet to solve your evangelism problems. Because if you don't have all the pieces pulled together, your care group or your small group is not going to work any better than your public evangelism or your personal Bible work. See, we need to understand the whole process of evangelism and make sure we have all the pieces in place or whatever method you use, your evangelism will not work. Your health ministry will not lead to conversions. Your public evangelism will not lead to conversions. Your small group ministry will not lead to conversions unless we have all the pieces that are necessary for effective evangelism. Ellen White says, 
Christ's method alone will give true success in reaching the people. And then she outlines a process, right? We need to make sure we have all the pieces in place, or whatever model of ministry we're doing, it's not going to work. Can you imagine what would happen if we got our brightest minds together? Our most committed, dedicated leader says, you know, we need to, I mean, we have the framework right here. If we would just put our minds together and say, why don't we work to try and figure this out and make it happen right here at Advent Hope? Why don't we make this church a training center where every believer has the opportunity to learn how to take in the Word of God for, them, for themselves, how to live it out practically, and then learn how to share it consistently with others. Can you imagine what would happen if something just came over this church here? Let me give you an example of what might happen. Suppose there is one person. I, I don't know. I'll pick Brad because I, I he's about the only name I know here. But let's say Brad. I'll pick on Brad. Let's say Brad is listening. And everyone else has an interesting sermon. This guy from North Dakota doesn't know. You know, whatever. But Brad says, you know, there's something about what Dan said. It makes sense. There's, there's something to this. And, and maybe no one else happens for them. But for Brad, he has a paradigm shift. And he says, you know, I need to start focusing on training workers. Right? A paradigm shift. It happens for Brad. One person. And so Brad spends this next year acquiring the skills that he needs to be able to teach these, and he finds maybe just one person, maybe even, that has an interest in growing, and he starts pouring out his life to them. Starts teaching them how to memorize, teaching them how to grow in their prayer life and in their Bible study and their personal obedience, showing them how to you know, transform their marriage and their relationship with their, with their kids and, and all aspects of their life, how to be more faithful and diligent at work. And, and eventually, as the person begins to grow and over the process of time, he starts teaching them how to go out and knock on doors and get Bible studies or lead a small group or whatever. And he starts pouring out his life to one person. And he spends a whole year doing that. Just, again, sick illustration, right? Bear with me. How many workers would you have at the end of that first year? Well, you'd have Brad, and you'd have the person he trained, right? And if during the course of the year, he also somehow imparted the same paradigm, imparted the same vision for multiplication, the same, you know, the same uh, way of thinking about the importance of, work, of training workers, if he did that, you'd have two workers at the end of that first year. And if he was able to do that successfully in one year, then Brad is able to start looking for another person, and the person he trained is able to start looking for another person, right? And they both take someone under their wing. By the way, you don't have to limit yourself to one person. And I'm not saying it takes a year. It may take longer. It may go quicker. I'm just, just for the sake of illustration, right? So you do this for a whole other year. How many workers are you going to have at the end of the second year? Well, those two have all found someone else, and now they've become four. And all four of them have the same vision, the same burning passion to multiply, to, to create workers. They, they recognize what the issue is, what the paradigm has to be to finish the work. And so they set out and they find someone else each. And all four of them take another person under their wing, and maybe some of them relocate, and so now he's starting up the same thing in some other area. But, but they just keep doing it. And so the next year, the four of them become how many? Eight. And then those eight become... 16. Now, suppose you did this for 10 years. How many would you have? Well, let's just think about this, right? Two the first year, then four, then eight, then 16, 32, 64, 128, 256, 512, 1,024. In other words, in 10 years, Brad would multiply and become 1,000 workers. Not 1,000 new members, but 1,000 workers. Now, you've had great growth here at Advent Hope, right? But there's still not 1,000 people here. And it's been more than 10 years. Right? In Isaiah 60, 22, it says, A little one shall become, what does it say? A thousand. A small one, a 
Strong nation. I, the Lord, will... And this is what God wants to do. He wants to multiply us. He wants to make each of us individually able to reproduce so we can become a thousand. So in 10 years, Brad could multiply and become a thousand. What if over the next 10 years, each of those thousand workers does the same thing? Each of them multiplies and becomes another thousand, right? So... Now we've gone from 1,000 to 1,000 times 1,000, right? How many is that? Any mathematicians here? You have a million. In 20 years, Brad would have multiplied. And all he does is just train one person every year. One person every year, right? Don't have to limit yourself to one. I'm just, for sake of illustration, if he just trains one person every year and each person is able to reproduce, at the end of 20 years, Brad will have multiplied. No one else in this room has to do anything. Just Brad. I'm talking to you, right? <laughs> If Brad is the only one that does anything and he multiplies for 20 years, he will become a million workers. Now, suppose those million workers do the same thing the next 10 years. Right? A million. Each of them become another thousand. What's a million times a thousand? Help me out. It's a billion. Right? With a billion workers, I mean, a billion workers. We're talking about the work on planet Earth being finished. Right? I mean, there's... What, seven and a half billion, eight billion, something like that? I mean, we each talk to six, six or seven people, and everyone has heard the message, and the work is done. We should never have to have another pastor start his ministry when he's 22 years old and work for 40 years and retire and not see the work. We should be able to get it done in a couple decades. That's what they did in the New Testament church. Every believer became a worker, and the work exploded beyond their wildest expectations. And the same thing can happen again today. If we could figure out how to do this in even one church, and why not make it Advent Hope, right? If we could figure out how to do it in one church, with the technology and the advantages we have today, there's no reason that this couldn't replicate itself and encircle the globe in an amazingly short period of time. But we've got to figure out how to get back to the New Testament plan. We've got to figure it out. We've got to put our heads together. No one person is going to be able to figure it out. We've got to get our brightest minds saying, how do we do this? How do we help every spiritual babe become a disciple? How do we help every disciple become a worker? How do we give them the skills and the tools and the training they need to be effective so they can multiply? If we could figure it out right here at Advent Hope, the work could be finished in just a matter of a few years. And Jesus could come, and we could go home, and we could leave all this heartache and suffering behind, and we could enjoy the blessings of heaven. But it all starts with a paradigm shift. It has to start with the paradigm shift, focusing on the New Testament method. May the Lord help us to do this. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.